everybody. Welcome to another episode of Courtside with Neil and Tennis, part of the Tennis Channel Podcast Network. It is an absolute privilege to have with us the creator of the Holding Court Podcast, where this guest has had on my co-host and Hall of Famer, Steve Flink. So Steve and I definitely wanted to have him on our pod. You've heard him for now 25 years on ESPN. He's also been on CNN. What a privilege for us to have him on our pod. Please welcome in Mr. Patrick McEnroe. Patrick, thanks for coming on. Thank you guys for having me. It's a pleasure to be on with you both. And uh, I guess since I had Steve on my pod, David, at some point, I'm going to have to reel you in. So, you know, get ready. <laughs> It'd be an absolute honor. Hey, you know, I wanted to, to touch base with you. I know you were in the latter, uh, some of the latter stages of Indian Wells. Great performance by the Americans. Before we do that, I still want to get, you know, everyone's still digesting the information with, with Ash Barty. I'm going to ask you for your thoughts and then I'll go to Steve, you know. World number one, won three slams, as recent, the Australian Open, closest to her home, only 25 years old. She's done this before, about eight years ago. Um, amazing champion, and by all accounts, even a, a more amazing individual. What, were your, what was your initial reaction when you heard the news? You know, I guess, uh, David and Steve, I was, I was surprised but I can't say in all honesty that I was shocked only, you know, I don't know Ashley Barty personally, other than just obviously watching her dominate as she did at the Australian open and kind of see the way she handles the press and, you know, being a big time player. Um, and it, it, you know, so he struck me that there's certain things about 10, I'm not just going to say tennis, but maybe the tour that she wasn't, uh, uh, maybe enamored with, you know, I could tell she didn't really like to talk to the press that much. She sort of knew it was an obligation. Um, and, you know, as much as, as great a player she, as she is, and she's clearly one of the, one of the great shot makers that we've seen in a long time in women's tennis, uh, the ability to do a lot of different things, which is unusual to see. Um, you know, she, I, I'm not sure she has that, that passion for tennis that you need to be, to, I, I guess, to have a really long career in, you know, to, to just love to be out there. Um, and obviously, you know, she has a lot of other interests, which is great. You know, she played cricket. You mentioned when she, she quit tennis a couple of years, you know, years ago when she was 17, became a, you know, a, a pretty good cricket player. I'm told she's an excellent golfer. So there's rumors, you know, maybe she'll try to go on the golf tour, but you know, Renee Stubbs, who works with us at ESPN, who knows her very well, uh, you know, we have a group text we have on ESPN with everybody. And, you know, she she said, you know, she's just a girl that just likes to be home. She's a little bit of a homebody. She likes to hang out with her friends. Obviously, she's getting married. Maybe she wants to have a big family, you know, and it's, it's easier if you're Roger Federer, Novak Djokovic or Andy Murray to have multiple children. Um, not easy, I should say, but more, more possible than if you're a woman. Uh, so maybe that played into it as well. But uh, I, the other first thing I thought, and then I'm very interested to hear Steve's take on it, is the first thing I thought, David, was she'll be back in two years, maybe three years, <laughs> you know, if she takes a break. So I don't know. I don't think she knows, to be honest. Um, but she sure has been a pleasure to watch with the way she plays. And yes, she won the French Open a couple of years ago. Then she won Wimbledon, which as she said was her life dream. But she dominated the Australian Open. I mean, there was That was Steffi Graf-like, yeah. Patrick. I mentioned yes. that to Steve. That was Steffi yeah. Graf-like running through a slam. Yeah, exactly. So I think, you know, when you see the way she dominated that and you thought, okay, like we may legitimately have a number one player that can actually stay there in women's tennis. We haven't had that since Serena was at the top. Um, they've all sort of come and gone. So, you know, Andy Murray, I thought, summed it up perfectly. Great for Ashley Barty, uh, a bummer for tennis, you know, because tennis is going to miss her. But if this is what she wants, then more power to it. Steve, what, what, what was your initial reaction? I know we chatted briefly about it, but now that you've had a couple of days to, to digest it a little bit, what, what are your thoughts? Well, just uh, getting back to what Patrick just said, it crossed my mind too. Maybe this is not the end. Maybe we will see her again. But oddly, I kind of, I'm really, I'm really conflicted on that because another part of me says no. She's probably for some, partially for the reasons Patrick cited, and she has a, a, a she's got a different kind of mentality uh, than a lot of the other champions. And I feel like 
maybe this whole COVID thing got to her in, in ways and she had to be away from home for so long. And I, my, my sense, Patrick, was that the, the, was the family, that that's really what's on her mind. Now, that doesn't mean she couldn't have a, her first child and come back and play a few more years as well. But I got a feeling that's sort of foremost on her mind right now, even though she hasn't announced that. But it is a loss for women's tennis. I wanted to see her round out her record with the U.S. Open, maybe add another French or two, add another Wimbledon and defend the Australian, she could have really put, put herself into a different category among the great women players in the modern era. Perhaps we're not going to get the chance uh, to see that now, but I do admire her because she's, she's an individual to the hilt. Don't you agree, Patrick? I mean, it, it took some guts to do this and I, I believe that she thought it through. Yeah. I mean, she said, uh, you know, one of the things she said in her press conference that she gave after her announcement was that she's always trusted her gut. You know, in her gut, you know, in her gut, she feels like this is the right decision. Um, she did sort of say, you know, the, the, it, it's, it's, it, the door is closed, but it's not locked. You know, so she's sort of giving people hope. And, and obviously for the Australian fans, I mean, they have their biggest ratings ever for her, for the tournament this year. Of course, we had the controversy with Novak Djokovic leading into the tournament. Um, in some ways, maybe that took a little pressure off of her going into the tournament. But boy, I mean, she just... As you said, David, she just rolled through the tournament, um, you know, for the Australian to have their own champion. And she's she's a she's a good old Aussie. You know what I mean? I mean, Leighton Hewitt always had sort of a love hate thing with the Australian public. He wasn't that that typical type of Aussie um, uh, attitude out there, at least sportsmanship. You know, he rubbed people the wrong way. Kyrios, obviously, we know what he does. But Ashley Barty had all the qualities of. Of, of a classical tennis player, you know, in the modern era, which is unusual, number one. And then she also did it, you know, the right, the Aussie way, the old school Aussie way, always giving uh, recognition to her team, always being a good sport, always behaving perfectly on the court, you know, no contra, a great doubles player. You'll love to play doubles. I mean, that's how she made her mark initially on the tour. So there's so many things about her that it was like the Australians were like, wow, this is going to be amazing for the next five, seven years at the Australian Open. You know, the men's game has always been huge down there. But now we have this top female player um, to follow. So I'm sure the networks down in Australia are a little bit bummed about her announcing this retirement after what she did at this year's tournament was just phenomenal to watch yeah it was and well well said by both of you and i know we have you on we got a lot to get into you but before we start um talking about your journey i'd be remiss if i didn't ask what what you thought of uh the americans at indian wells i mean steve and i just had our indian wells recap episode seven americans in round three you almost had nine because sock was up five three in the first set tiebreaker in the third set tiebreaker against Sitsi pass uh, you had the Sebi Corda versus Rafa match up five, what was it, five, three, two breaks. Um, the Americans had their footprints all over that tournament, obviously led by Taylor Fritz. We're going to get into those group of guys because you have some deep history with those guys. Um, you have to be thrilled with, with where we're at right now. Well, um, you know, like you said, I, I, I ran player development for a number of years when, when a lot of those guys were coming up. They were young teenagers. So uh, it was always our mission to try to develop like a really good group of players and, you know, continue that over the years. Obviously a lot of this is luck. I mean, we all know that. Um, and if you want to create a great, great player, it probably doesn't have a lot to do with any federation or any coaching system. It's mostly about, you know, the greatness of that player and, and their own personal drive. But in saying that, I think we set up something that um, helped these players, you know, as youngsters coming up. And as you said, They've helped each other more than anything. You talk about Taylor Fritz, you talk about Tommy Paul, Riley Opelka, Francis Tiafo, and now you've got these couple of slightly younger guys coming up in Corda and Brooksby who are excellent players. So I think between, you know, those five, six guys, there's a couple of them that I think can, can get to the top. Can they be number one? I'd be surprised with that, but I think there's a chance that Definitely more than a chance you can see them in the final weekend of a major uh, semifinals or better. Um, I wouldn't put him as a lock to win a major like Alcaraz. Like to me, he's a lock. Like he's going to win multiple majors. He's going to be, I think, the next great, great male player in tennis, at least that I've seen thus far. Um, 
but the Americans have, you know, this is the most, the most options we've had in this country on the men's side yeah. for a long time. You talk about sock, obviously came along sort of on his own. Ryan Harrison had a good run there for a couple of years. So he's, he's fallen off. Um, but when you've got this group of four or five guys, the same age, then you've got, you know, these next two guys coming right behind them. So I think there's a real shot that we're going to have some players competing for big tournaments for the next decade. I think, and I'll, I'll ask Steve this, I think even the most exciting part about it is all those guys that you just mentioned, Patrick, there's still room for them to get better, which is great news, right, Steve? Oh, they, they, they're going to get immeasurably, immeasurably better. It's interesting, Patrick, that I, I feel maybe I'm a li- even a little bit more uh, encouraged I, I kind of I, I think you're right in the short term about uh, where they might be going, but somehow I look at the mentality. At Brooksby is just such a tough customer and 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 so hardworking and, and and so much better than he looks, in my view, as a player. When you watch the way he navigates matches and Corda, I think that was uh, heartbreaking for him to, be, to have five two two breaks and be two points away against Rafa, but he's on his way and Opelka is as improved. I could somehow see not this year. But next year, I could see one of them maybe stealing a major, not being number one in the world, but maybe winning a major. I'm not encouraged. And uh, and we haven't seen this for so long. And, and Patrick, obviously, uh, you had something to do with this, uh, tra- tracing it back. Talk about the pride you have in having played a role in the shaping of American tennis to where it is today, because the, the results were not seen right away. But you... you you were there in what, in what might be called the embryonic stages. Yeah, I mean, I look, I, I, I can't take any credit for it myself because I'm, I'm not a coach per se, but I, I put, I think, a good, really good team in place. And those coaches, you know, led by Jose Higueras, Jay Berger, who was with the USTA as a head of men's tennis and helped me, obviously, in my years in Davis Cup um, and countless coaches, you know, but um, I think the vision we had was a good one which was to raise the bar for, for just coaching in general. I mean, look, we got to be honest. The Europeans were far ahead of us in training and coaching. Now, they also have maybe better athletes playing tennis, which definitely is part of it. But I think we were able to raise the bar on what we were doing coaching-wise and training-wise. And even the, even the naysayers out there, the coaches that say, oh, the USDA didn't do it. I still hear from these people, by the way. USDA had nothing to do with any of these players. I'm like, really? I mean, you don't even know what you're talking about. But anyway, that being said, there was a lot of co- you know individual coaches or parents or the players themselves. They're the ones that should get the most credit. But at the same time, I, I really believe we put a good a good system in place, a good program in place that helped push these players and sort of raise the bar for them as they were 13, 14, 15, 16, and then you know transitioning into the pro game. So. Uh, yeah, I am very proud of it because, uh, you know, I, w- I wasn't happy with the way it ended, to be honest. I talked to Jose Higueras on one of my podcasts where he really wanted to vent a lot about, you know, some of the things he was disappointed with the way they ended um, because they didn't give us the full 10, you know, 12 years that we thought it really took. We got about seven years out of it. Um, but, you know, that's politics partly plays part of it. And I, I know how the USTA works. So, look, I didn't take it personally that they pushed me out. But um, I felt that we were able to get a lot of good things done. Uh, and I'm very happy to see what's, what's happening with these players. I'm a little concerned about what's coming next, you know, because they sort of cut us off um, a couple of years ago. But again, we're also seeing, you know, it's interesting too now. We're seeing, you know, women's tennis. We were always like, ah, we got plenty of women. Look, they're just coming like in bunches every year. Well, now, you know, we're in a little bit of an area where, okay, where's the next great American female player. I mean, okay, Coco Goff is there, but she's kind of stagnated a little bit. You know, Sloan Stevens, Madison Keys seem to be maybe a little bit past our prime, although we've seen some good stuff from Keys this year. Kennan, what in the world has happened to her, who won the Australian Open, got to the finals of the French. Jennifer Brady's injured. Danielle Collins, you know, has battling injuries. Great run in Australia. So I think we have a lot of hope there. Um, CC Bellis, who I thought could have been a, you know, top 10 player and had just horrendous injuries has now, you know, been forced to retire. So I'm very optimistic on the men and I'm a little concerned about what's coming in the pipeline for the men down the road. 
Um, although, like you said, we're going to have a good, you know, decade or so here. Uh, and I'm a little more concerned about the women at this point. Well, I'll, I'll, I'll end this topic uh, by saying, you know, you recently had Riley Opelka on and, and it was really nice that Riley emphasized that um, you spent a ton of time and you invested a ton of time with Riley and that group, that, that, that crop of guys. So that obviously had to be, uh, it, it felt good for you to hear that from someone who's in the mix of, uh, you know, being one of the next possibly slam champs for the U.S. So we'll, we'll, we'll move on to a different topic, but yeah, definitely proud work with all those guys, Patrick. Um, let's take it back a little bit. 1991, beginning of the year, Australian Open, Sunnies, <laughs> the famous quote that you had, no surprise here. It's Edberg, Lendl, Becker, and McEnroe. Uh, I want you to, one, talk about that run, and two, not many people know, but, and correct me if I'm wrong, your first round match, you were down two sets to love, I believe. The centers right. were the farthest thing from your mind at that point. <laughs> uh, I'm going to let you all in on a little secret now, David. It was Steve Flink that gave me that line as I was walking into the press room. <laughs> <laughs> That's why we have Steve on here, Patrick. That's why I've seen out. No, because Steve's been around. Um, you know, the funny thing about that tournament, um, yes, you're right. I was down two sets to love in a break in the third against Thomas Hogstead, the Swede, who um, ended up, of course, having a great coaching career as well. And uh, I remember I was wearing a hat because it was a super hot day in Australia. And I didn't like wearing hats because it, was, I, it, I, it always messed with my vision. So I was down two sets and a break in the third. And down a double break in the third. And I remember I hit a serve and the hat kind of like flew in front of my face. And I was so this hat. I just hit it like literally like smacked the hat into the fence. And I think I was down like 1540 in that game. Somehow I managed to hold and the match started to turn and uh, it was really, really hot. And by the th early in the fourth set, I could tell like he was done, like physically done. The heat got to him. So I was able to win it pretty easily the last couple of sets. But, you know, I had spent the month before that. I was on getting ready to leave New York or, you know, the month or so before to go to Australia. And I, I had no coach. I was traveling by myself. And my brother was in Hawaii, of all places, like renting a place. And he wasn't, you know, he was in one of his sabbaticals. So, I don't know, was it the, uh, it was a year after he got, when was the year he got thrown out? Was that the next year or the year before? I think it was the year before. I think it was nine. Four. Yeah. 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 Was so he wasn't yeah. going back because, you know, he had that nightmare when he got thrown out against Pernforce. So he was in Hawaii. So he said to me, Patrick, why don't you come here? You could train, you know, here on your way to Australia. I said, great, sign me up. So I went to Hawaii and who was there with him? It was he when he was married to his first wife. So they rented like a house or something. The great speed skater, Eric Hyden. You remember him? One yeah. of the all-time great speed skaters. And he was and John were good friends. So Eric Hyde would go out and train with me. Like, I, I mean, I didn't know anything. I was just like whatever but i was I, I could work hard so he had me doing all these exercises that he would do for speed skating which were similar to tennis you know side to side and you know run sprint all this stuff so i did that for a couple of weeks and then i went to australia and i kept doing all this stuff on my own i went to new zealand played a warm-up tournament i think i played another one in sydney so i was feeling very fit very strong and by the way you know that i was the i was one of the last players to even get in the main draw that year because I believe I was ranked about 120 118 so I initially didn't get straight in because the cutoff was was lower but a few players pulled out so I got in and lo and behold winning that first round match in five sets gave me a lot of confidence in my fitness um, and my belief system now of course it helped that I had a good draw um, I played my good buddy Jay Berger who I just was yeah. now the coach of El Pelka he was a pretty highly ranked seed at the time, but he was coming off of, you know, he had a lot of knee problems, so he wasn't quite a hundred percent. So I beat him pretty easily in straight sets, mostly partly because he was slightly injured. And then I think I played Woodford, who was, you know, a good player, but I, I beat him pretty comfortably. And then I played Cristiano Karate in the quarterfinals. Now he had beaten, I believe, Krychek, who was a high seed. 
So it was a pretty good draw. And, uh, but that match won five sets against Krychek. I mean, against karate. Uh, I was up two sets to love. And then I lost the next two sets. I actually hurt my back in the fourth set. And I remember thinking like, oh man, I can't believe this. I'm going to blow this match. And I had the trainer come out at the end of the fourth set, kind of loosen me up a little bit. And I remember they, I believe the roof was closed. It was one of the first years, you know, they were played with the roof and, um, they closed the roof and I remember saying, okay, I'm serving first, just hold serve and try to just like sneak a break at some point. So, and you know, pace yourself. So sure enough, uh, I was able to get a break like a two, three or something in the fifth and, you know, somehow win it in five. And um, then I played Becker in the semis. And I'll just tell you this last part of the story, which was I was up a set and I had a, you know, I'd beaten Becker a couple of times. So he was the one guy out of those top players that I could have a chance against. If I played Agassi, he would destroy me every time. You know, Michael Chang, similar players to me, just much better. But against Becker, you know, I was a great returner. I had a chance. So I remember thinking to myself, I think I had a break point, like a two, three in the second. And I remember thinking to myself, holy shit, I could be in the finals of the Australian Open. <laughs> <laughs> and, and that then, was it from that point on it was it like you know six uh, three six two six four i was out as soon as that thought enters your mind i've as heard that from so mind, many players like, you got to stay in the present it's so hard to do exactly. just a side to that patrick how would you compare the performance against boris there to a very, what i thought was maybe an even better one at the u.s open in 95 in the quarters yeah, I thought, day, I, I, yeah yeah i thought i played better yeah, that day at the Open, they're just quick, quickly throw this in. I, I'd never seen you look more fiercely competitive and you were playing off the crowd and I thought you playing to a very high level and I, I thought you actually had him uh, quite worried there. So how, how do you compare that to Australia? I think I played better in that match. You know, the one I lost, I lost in four sets and uh, yeah. it, was, it was, you know, always my dream to have a run at the U.S. Open, right? Because it's my hometown and you know, it was a hard court, which was my best chance. And most of my better results in, in a major in singles was at the Australian Open for whatever reason. But, uh, you know, that year I got hot. I was also down two sets to love in the third round of that tournament against Volkov, Alexander Volkov, who unbelievably passed away a couple of years ago, which was tragic. He was the same age as me. I remember playing against him in junior tournaments in Italy you know, as a 15, 16 year old. So that, that really hurt when I heard that he passed away. He was in his early fifties. But um, when I played Boris, I'll, I'll tell you this. I had a new coach at the time in that last year, a guy named Dickie Herbst, who had coached Mayotte a bit. It was kind of a friend of a friend of mine. And he, um, he was trying to get me to play more offensively because, you know, I was a good little counter puncher. And I remember I was practicing that all during the year and he would have me practice with better players to try to raise my expectations. So I remember I lost the first two sets in that match at the open and I was playing really well. And it was like, you know, seven, six, six, four or something like that. And I remember sitting on the changer and I was thinking, man, I was like, I've been, I mean, I got nothing to lose. I've been playing, you know, trying to practice playing bigger so why don't I just do it? And what, I mean, I'm down two sets to love. I'm playing well. The guy's just better than me. So when I did that, I felt like I actually played even better. And I won the third set. And I believe I lost a fourth in a tie break. And I may have even had a set point or two to take it to a fifth. And I would have liked my chances in the fifth. Because like you said, I, I got the crowd into it. It was one of those day into the night matches. So the vibe was awesome. Um, but... It was, I was most really proud of that because I felt like I, I pushed myself in the middle of the match in a big, you know, one of the biggest matches I've ever played to play better. So although it was obviously disappointing to lose it, um, at the end of the day, it was, you know, one of the matches I'm most proud of. Thanks for sharing that. I want to stick uh, in 1991 because something cool happened. You know, I'm a Chicago guy, Patrick. Yes. In 1991, yes. it was the Volvo. It was a Volvo event. And you played the yep. final. I was at the tournament, not not the final, but you played your brother John in the final um, briefly. I mean, how cool was that? Well, it wasn't that cool, Dave, because <laughs> um, 
you know, we didn't like playing against each other. And John really didn't like losing to me, although he never lost to me in, in an official match. I did beat him in doubles a couple of times um, over the years. And, you know, he wouldn't talk to me for like three months, you know, if I beat him in doubles. <laughs> so, uh, um, you know, he, I was a younger brother and, you know, obviously he's, he's Johnny Mac. So his, the, the pedigrees were a lot different, but at that time, that was when I was sort of at the peak of my playing days and John was at the tail end of his career. So actually from a competitive standpoint, I actually had a chance to win the match where the other times we played, you know, a six, two, six, two, six, one, six, two, no chance. But this time I actually had a chance to win the match. Uh, I won the first set, ended up losing uh, six, four in the third, pretty fast indoor court which you know, suited him well. Um, but it was one of those matches where I actually could have won. Um, I'd be lying to you if I said I, I, I tried to lose because I didn't. But I would also be lying to you if I said I really wanted to win because I, I really didn't in, in one way because he was my older brother. I looked up to him. Um, I knew it would hurt him more than it would help me. Like he would just he could never have lived with himself, which he still you know admits to this day. Um, so it was you know it was a it was a good match. It was a co very competitive match, and certainly one that um, you know proud to be able to say it happened. You know, and that we yeah. played against each other when we were both you know fairly evenly matched at least at that point in time. That's cool that 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 happened. I'll, I'll I'll leave it to Steve if we want to talk about anything else that happened in 1991. I'm not going there. <laughs> yeah, I'll go there. But but before I do, just briefly, just briefly talk about how difficult it was to follow in John's footsteps. I mean, you 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 know, here was this uniquely talented, creative, left-handed genius, and you would you would you know you're coming along and trying to establish yourself. And it probably wasn't even, it wasn't, it was a challenge in life as well as tennis. But what was it like to follow in his footsteps as a player and create your own identity and accomplish well, what you. I'm going to show you this picture right here. It's in my office. And you can, if you look up real close and you might even be able to read it, I don't know, but it says there's a little guy on the, on the left there. Okay. I'll read it to you. Okay. Okay. And it says, uh, I have to look away so I can read it. This was at Port Washington Tennis Academy, where we both, you know, grew up playing, where Harry Hopman, you know, ran it. So it says, um, there's a picture with Lucy Hopman and all the young kids, you know, getting a certificate. Young chap at left is Pat McEnroe, five. Younger player at Port Washington Tennis Academy and brother of John McEnroe, nationally ranked number seven, in the boys 12s okay so it just happened to this sitting here in my office now why am i telling you this because this was something i got used to at a very young age okay and i could tell you a million stories which i do when i go give speeches you know about the photographer at the national boys 16s in nashville uh, tennis tennessee that just took pictures when i got upset you know i was totally calm and then when i got upset they took pictures it was on the front page of the paper so I got used to it growing up because I was a really good junior tennis player, but I wasn't my brother. And even when my brother became number one in the world, you know, I was, I was the number one recruit in the country when I went to Stanford, you know, so I was, I was a big time junior player. Uh, but was I going to be as good as my brother? Probably not. But uh, when I graduated from Stanford, I'll tell you this last tidbit. I, wasn't sure I wanted to play pro tennis. I'd had some success in doubles already on the tour while I was in college. In fact, I won the tournament in San Francisco with Jim Grab while I was still a student in college. So I already knew I could be a good doubles player, but I you know, wasn't sure my singles, you know, my, my last couple of years of college weren't great tennis wise. So I wasn't in a great place. And I decided to study to go to law school. In my last quarter at Stanford, I was already graduated, basically, because I was ahead in my classes. So I studied to take the LSATs, the, the, the law boards, to get into college. My dad, as you know, Steve was a lawyer. My brother, Mark's a lawyer. His wife's a lawyer. So there's a lot of lawyers in the McEnroe family. And I was doing really well on all the practice tests. And then 
the day after I graduated from Stanford, I took the law boards literally the day after. I remember we had this big party at our, me and my buddies at Stanford. And I was like, oh, geez, I got to take the LSATs tomorrow. And my mom was like a big driver behind this. Like, you know, maybe you don't want to, maybe you should go to law school. Maybe you shouldn't be a pro tennis player. John would always say to her, mom, shut up. <laughs> you know, let Patrick do what he wants to do. Patrick's good enough to make it in the pros. Let him decide what he wants to do. So when I got my scores back for the law boards and I showed them to my mom, Steve and David, my mom said, son, I think you should stick with tennis. Because <laughs> I didn't do great on the test. And she was like, well, you're not going to get into Harvard or Stanford Law School. Um, so, you know, once I made that decision, uh, you know, the first couple of years I was on tour were tough because I, I, I couldn't make it in singles. I wasn't making it. I was doing very well in doubles. Um, and I probably could have had a great career. I think I could have won a lot more majors in doubles if I had just focused on doubles. But after about two years on the tour, I was like, you know, I really want to try to make it in singles. So I put doubles sort of in the back seat. I, I, I got serious about my fitness. I, I worked hard. I trained hard. I realized I was going to have to do work a lot harder, you know, to make it on the tour. Luckily, I had a little cushion that I was making some money playing double. So that helped me. Um, but that was really that really started in 90 because, you know, I graduated in 88 from Stanford and um, 89. I won the French Open with Jim Grab and doubles. You know, we were one yep. of the top doubles teams in the world. And it was sort of like end of 90 was like a reality check for me. It was like, OK, if I, I want to make it, I got to start, you know, playing challengers and you know, grinding it out. And so that's what I did. And that, that helped me, you know, I moved my ranking. I was like 500 in the world at the middle way through 1990. Uh, and then towards the last half of that year, that's when I got my ranking up to where I, I had a chance to get in the Australian open. And then I did, and then, you know, got to the semi. So I solidified my, my singles career for, you know, I, I fluctuated between, you know, 30 and 70, 80, whatever for most of my career in singles over the course of the next six, seven years. But, but 95 ended up being, you know, one of my great years and disappointing that I had certain, you know, shoulder problems at the end of that year. So I was never really able to capitalize uh, on that. Uh, the good news of my shoulder issues and surgeries was that I started my television career. Yeah, that worked out. Worked, okay. That worked out well, but it, it kind of ended my playing career a little earlier than I wanted. Patrick, oh, Patrick, you mentioned um, Patrick. You mentioned doubles. Um, uh, if I if I can, and, and Steve, if you want to add to that topic, go ahead. No, I, no. I just wanted before we we moved on. I just wanted to get Patrick. You know, we you you remember last year we spoke, Patrick. Like I was doing a piece about Connors and the thirty year anniversary of right. His nine. Uh, Pat, I guess we're going there, Patrick. I guess we're going there. <laughs> That's no, okay. I, it has I, to happen. I, you know. read, I wanted to read to you and David what you said to me, Patrick, at the time and, and get you to build on this a bit or just, just anything you want to add to it. But you, you said you were up two sets to love and three love, love 40. You almost had them there. And you said, I remember thinking to myself midway through the third set, I have got Jimmy Connors beat. And once I thought that the wheels started to come off, I took my foot off the gas ever so slightly. And Jimmy recognized that. Uh, I mean, uh, you just elaborate on that a little bit. And then you talked also about how hard it was. You couldn't sleep that night. Obviously it was a very painful loss. And on the, uh, on the other hand, he, he had that spectacular run all the way to the penultimate round and lost to Courier in the semis. Just give us some additional thoughts on that, if you would, because I know, I, I know it's not the most pleasant moment of your career, but it's one you are remembered for somewhat poignantly, because I think a lot of people sympathize with the fact that, you know, the crowd, what was left of it in the wee small hours in the morning <laughs> right. was rooting for him. Yeah, I still, I, still, I still run into a lot of people, Steve, that say they were rooting for me in that match. And I was like, I, I didn't hear you. Nobody <laughs> nobody could hear you. Um, but obviously, understandably, that people were rooting for Jimmy at that point. He was 39. But I think if I had played that match, you know, three or four years later, I probably would have closed it out because I would have had that, you know, some more experience and. Or, a, or how about on an outside court? I know it would be in the stadium, but yeah, I mean, if you played I mean, on an outside know, court. You know, um, you know, I had a, a, quite a few matches that I <clears throat> came back from when I was two sets down over the course of the next few years. So 
even though I lost this one, <coughs> excuse me, to Jimmy, which hurt a lot, um, you know, I learned from it. And it, 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 it inevitably made me a better player. You know, but for six months after that, I went into a tailspin. I mean, I couldn't win matches at all. Um, and, you know, the other interesting thing about it, and I've watched some, like, snippets of the match, you know, both in the first two sets and then later in the match. I mean, at that point, you know, we were pretty evenly matched. It wasn't like, you know, he was playing at a level where I probably shouldn't beat him in straight sets. You know what I mean? Like, he was playing at a high level. I was playing like a guy who was – you know, 25, 30 in the world, something like that. I wasn't like Courier, you know, Courier just beat the crap out of him because he was playing, you know, at a level top five player. But I think Connors was playing at a, at a really high level. And I, so was I, you know, I was playing really good tennis. And uh, again, you know, he, we had practiced together. So we knew each other well. Um, it wasn't, you know, each game we played was pretty tight. So it wasn't really that surprising that he could turn it around when you look at just the style of play in the matchup. Um, but definitely, I mean, he was the master. He took advantage. He saw that, you know, maybe I had a little doubt there in the third set, won the fourth set pretty easily. You know, the fifth was pretty close. I mean, there was I had chances in the fifth, if I remember correctly. I think he broke me midway through the fifth, but I had chances to break back. So it was a pretty close, you know, 6-4 final set. Um, and interestingly, I played Jimmy, uh, I'm going to say the following spring and, you know, he obviously, you know, turned this into a whole thing where he, you know, basically started the senior tour because of that, had that run, you know, and he ended up, you know, still playing on the regular tour off and on sporadically. And I played him in, of all places, uh, Coral Springs. You remember they had the tournament on red yeah. clay. Yeah, and red red clay in Coral Springs. I played him like in the spring, like in March. Real hot. Night match. I was. It, I think it was the first round. It was the first or second round of the tournament. And obviously, it was a huge crowd for that tournament, you know, because Jimmy was playing. And I barely beat him. I mean, I beat him seven five seven five on slow red clay. <laughs> which at this point in our careers, you know, favored me because I was a lot younger. I, I was moving well. But, but my only point in telling you this is just to say, like, even when the, when the conditions favored me, I, I was really close. You know, I barely beat him in two sets. So, you know, Jimmy was amazing. I had a lot of, you know, I had a lot of respect for him. I used to practice with him a lot, which I think drove my brother crazy because, you know, and I think Jimmy probably practiced with me to piss off my brother, you know, um, <laughs> But I like to practice with Jimmy because he played, you know, I played a more similar style to him. So for me to play with my brother was obviously great practice. But, you know, from Jimmy, I could kind of see how to play a similar style. Obviously, he didn't play it as well, but that kind of style. So I always enjoyed, you know, being able to practice with him over the years. But I think he used all of those things to his advantage, you know, to pull out all the stops as he was, you know, a, a genius at doing to come back and win that match and then have another you know, a couple great wins over Crickstein and Harhouse and, and everything he did in that tournament. Well, thank Does you. Thank you for sharing that, Patrick. Go ahead, Steve. Does it surprise you, Patrick, that he always says that was the best 11 days of his career? I've never fully understood that because great champions usually live by the highest of standards. And not that this wasn't a remarkable run to get to the semis, but here's a guy that won the U.S. Open five times on three different surfaces, won Wimbledon twice, won the Australian five years in a row, number one, and he always alludes to that 91 open first to me it's a bit surprising that he wouldn't look on one of his one of the great triumphs that uh, over over say well, Bjorn. Well, well you know yeah i mean i think that is surprising and i think um you know he had that great win over john at wimbledon in 82 yeah. and john yeah. should have won um you know obviously his matches with borg were legendary too but i think what he what i think why he says it i think he said this is because you know, this is what he wanted. This is what he wanted tennis to be, you know, sort of chaotic, you know, the New York crowd, getting the crowd into it, feeding off of it, playing to the crowd. Um, that's something, you know, bring the street fight. You know, he was a street fighter. I mean, that's what made him partly what made him great. He brought that street fighter mentality to, to, the, to the state old sport of tennis. And so I think that kind of it all came together in those 11 days for him. 
and for tennis. I mean, the fact that, you know, he was on the cover of Sports Illustrated reaching the semifinals of the, of the U.S. Open. That's yeah. never happened before or since. And Patrick, <laughs> if it made it any easier on you, I guess you can give a little bit of thanks to Aaron Krikstein because every year when there was a rain delay at the Open and they replayed a match in that run, it was most, most of the time it was the unbelievable match versus Krikstein in the fourth round. So it maybe saved you from having to relive that tough first round match. Uh, yeah, because yeah, Aaron had to relive it until they finally got the roof. So then they got rid of that. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, hey, so uh, thank you for sharing that. I do, you know, you had mentioned doubles and, and I want to transition and you've been so kind with your time. So we want to hit a couple more things, but we can go pretty quickly. Um, the Davis Cup and you mentioned doubles. And I mean, my gosh, have we been spoiled? I mean, you had Johnny Mack and Peter Fleming, you had Ken Flack and Robert Seguso, Rick Leach and Jim Pugh, of course, the Bryan brothers. We're all interested now in my opinion, I've talked about this with Steve and many others. I think right now, Jack Sock is the best doubles player on this planet, what he's done. It's intriguing to see how they're going to use him and pair him up because he could basically win with anybody. I know they just had Rajiv Ram with him with Columbia um, when they beat Columbia. You and your brother, you were obviously the captain a lot longer than your brother were, but I believe it's the only brother tandem in the U.S. to ever be both Davis Cup captains, won the Cup in 07, um, with that run with, with Andy and James and the Bryan brothers. If you can briefly talk a little bit about that run and, and, and just how fortunate we've had with, with a stable of unbelievable doubles teams. Yeah, I think, you know, doubles has obviously always been a huge part of Davis Cup. And, you know, get, you know in those days gets its own day, is Saturday, and usually a crucial point, you know, to determine who wins the overall tie. And, uh you know, it's not so much that particular year um, that I remember, uh, but it was really the journey with those players. I think that's what made that year so special was, you know, losing to France in the semifinals as we did, losing to Spain with a, some young lefty named Rafael Nadal who, who had his Davis Cup debut. And we were like, man, this guy could be pretty good uh, in, in a soccer stadium in Seville in Spain, going to Russia, you know, losing there. Um, you know, being close to winning it a couple of times. And those guys really committed to it. You know, Andy Roddick had some, some of his great matches were losses, you know, overseas. And uh, I remember when we lost to France uh, in the semifinals, we played at Roland Garros like, a couple of weeks after the U.S. Open. And he lost both his matches, but he played his ass off. You know, and I remember him sitting in the shower, like sitting down, you know, apologize. And I was like, what are you apologizing for, man? You put your ass on the line. You tried your hardest. And he was an ultimate competitor. So when we were able to win it, you know, bring even the players that didn't play as much on the team, like Marty Fish and Robbie Ginepri, who were sort of part of that era. Uh, and the Bryan brothers and, you know, James Blake won a tough match against Usney <clears throat> on day one to put us up two zip. And then for the Bryant to clinch it you know, to win it. Uh, yeah, they were just automatic uh, in, in their preparation for Davis Cup, their passion for it. I remember going into the locker room with them. And I mean, they would say it every almost every time we had a Davis Cup match, they would say, Captain, this is the most important match of our lives, like right now. And and you know what, these are guys that won, you know, multiple majors ended up winning the gold medal. But I believed them. I mean, that, that's the, like they, they were willing to put that pressure on themselves that like this, like we have to deliver. They lost a couple of matches in Davis Cup, maybe two or three when I was a captain. But I mean, even the ones they lost, I mean, we lo the only match we ever lost at home was to Croatia. If you remember that in Carson, yeah. Agassi played when Lubacic was on his run, uh, you know, playing great. He actually beat Roddick and Agassi. Yeah. And beat the Bryans in doubles. Wow. Okay. Which was shocking. And, and I was, you know, so upset because the court was too slow. Andre didn't like it. It was too gritty. And that was part of the reason we lost. It was the only match in 10 years we ever lost at home was that particular match at Croatia. Um, so just a lot of great memories of, you know, the steps along the way. So, you know, finally winning it was, uh, was a dream come true for all of us as a team. And I think it was because we, you know, we put so much into it over the course of those, those years to get the chance to win it and to do it at home was awesome. 
So where does that rank for you, Patrick, among your career-defining moments? Because that Davis Cup captaincy, I know how proud you are of that of just having done it for a decade. But yeah, the U.S. had one. That, that's right up there. I mean, there's my picture of the, uh, you know, this I'm showing you my office here. There's my picture of the team right there. And the only things on my wall right there are Davis Cup related. My first tie against Switzerland in 2001 when uh, they had some young teenager. I don't know if you've heard of him. His name is Roger. Played, <laughs> played for them. And I remember watching this guy and I'm thinking to myself, man, this guy is on. And I, in fact, David, you mentioned doubles. When he actually played doubles was when I thought this guy's insane. Like he would, he would cross and he would hit the volley and he'd do like this, like chop it and the ball would die. Like he put so much English on, on, on his like cut volleys. And I was like, I've never seen a guy like wield the racket the way this guy does. This guy's phenomenal. So uh, that's my memories, you know, here in my little office at our tennis academy uh, because Davis Cup meant a lot to us. And I, I credit my parents, by the way, the day we're recording this, just so everybody knows, is my dad's birthday. Okay, my dad was born on March 25th. So I'm going to try not to get emotional because you all know he's, he passed away a few years ago. But both, um, both of our parents were very strict about a couple of things. Education, sportsmanship, you know, playing fair. I mean, of course, John, you know, got pissed off, but always played fair. Uh, making calls when we were kids. You know, I follow junior tennis. I see people cheating. It, it just drives me crazy. The thought of us ever doing that was like, no, no, you lose the match. You walk off the court. If you ever do that, you don't do that. Uh, and then Davis Cup, you know, representing your country. And those are things that really meant a lot to my parents and to us. That's, you know, why did John go to Stanford for a year? He was already top 30 in the world. Why do you think he went, Steve? Your parents, well, your, your yeah, parents, because because my mom said you're going, <laughs> right, right. You're you're right. going for a year. You know we've in, you've invested this. John was a great student, by the way. He's smart as a whip. I mean, you guys know that. So he went for a year, even though he was. Can you imagine someone now going to college, having just reached the semifinals of Wimbledon? That's what John did in '78. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, so that's why that you know I rate that as probably the highlight of my professional career. You know. Be, as you said, being the captain for 10 years, which is the longest ever, which I'm very proud of, um, and being able to win it uh, with those guys and what they put into it, you know, the dedication they put into it is what made it so special. So great. So great. Um, you mentioned the Academy right now. I know you've been spending a lot of time at the, at the, to the John McEnroe Tennis Academy. I know adults can play there, but I think the Academy's emphasis is really on juniors. Um, that's where I think your biggest programs are. I, I was doing the research, you know, a, a while ago, and I see you guys have a whole formal college placement program as well. I know you've been spending more. Have you been spending more and more time there since the pandemic, or have you always been pretty much involved um, helping your brother? Uh, well, I started here about five years ago. So after I left the USTA about a year or so after I left there, I started here. So I'm going to say, I think that was, you know, 2017-ish. Okay. So I've always been spending a lot of time here when I'm not on TV. Uh, this is my, basically my, my job when I'm home. Uh, they, they're great. They give me flexibility to do the other stuff I like to do, like my podcasts and different appearances and what have you. But I'm here, you know, pretty much every week. And uh, you're right. We, we have programs for adults. We give lessons to anybody. Um, we have weekend court time. But the, the, the John McEnroe Tennis Academy is for kids. And that was John's mission when he started it years, years prior to me coming and joining him. Um, that, you know, from three in the afternoon until eight every night, Monday through Friday, it's all about the kids uh, who come after school. Now we do have a bigger homeschool program now. So we have kids that come during the day as well. Uh, and it's great. And like you said, the pandemic has been the biggest boom for tennis in the last you know, 25 years. You know that, you know, all over the country, tennis is booming. Uh, we were able to reopen at our academy here in New York City, believe it or not, in early July of 2020, mm. which was, I mean, nothing, basically nothing else was open uh, because of the distancing, you know, you can do in tennis naturally. And uh, it's just recently in the last month or so that we've been able to get rid of our um, 
I've got my Laver Cup mask. I've got mask. my ESPN, ESPN mask. You know, that we actually don't have to wear them around the club now. Um, but uh, business is booming, and we have a you know great mix of kids that play in their high school team and play for fun, and kids that are nationally ranked. And we run a scholarship program we, we raise money for. Um, BNP Paribas, I got to say thank you to them, because that was actually why I was went to the desert, is to thank them and help them with their clients and their tournament sponsorship because they give a huge amount of money to us every year so that we can support these high-end kids that normally wouldn't be able to afford um, lessons and groups and traveling to ITF tournaments and the junior tournament. So that's my way of saying thank you to them uh, for supporting us. So we have a for-profit side and not-for-profit side, and we're very lucky. We have a great company in sport time that helps, you know, run the place for us. And um, it's a lot of fun. You know, and, and I got to tell you, one of the things I've enjoyed more than anything, okay, about being in this tennis academy is actually working with kids and adults that aren't very good at tennis, but they actually want to learn something and they want to improve. And I have this one girl that I give lessons to fairly regularly who is really not that good at tennis, but the smile on her face when she does something well and she improves and I'm thinking to myself, as a coach, that's way more gratifying to me than even working, you know, because we have a lot of really good young players here. I like working with them, too. But there's something different about working with someone that, you know, they're doing it for the love of, of, of improving and trying to do something positive with their life. And uh, that's really that's touched me a lot these last couple of years. I love it. Oh, it's so rewarding at, at, at all levels of the game. A hundred percent. Look. Holding Court, the Holding Court podcast. I know you started it in your basement during the <laughs> uh, the quarantine. It's not yep. just for tennis fans. You have, you have had guests involved in theater, which obviously hits close to home with you. Your wife is phenomenal in that area. You've had guests involved in politics. You did a great job with guests regarding the Novak situation. Australia also covering the, uh, the Peng Shui situation. When you started this, uh, you know, I guess my only question with this is when you started it in the pandemic, did you have uh, an idea that you wanted to go outside of the tennis arena a little bit, or did that just naturally flow? Well, I wanted to go outside of it initially, and I sort of went the you know pseudo celebrity route of people that I'd met through the years that I knew um, were successful, maybe not even celebrities, but just successful in their walk of life, um, who like tennis, who love tennis. And then I realized um, I need to do ones that are just about tennis too, you know, about what's going on in tennis. And then in the last, you know, six to nine months, I started really concentrating on some of these, you know, issues in tennis that relate to the world, you know, political issues, whether it's the Peng Shui, um, the, the vaccine issue with Djokovic. Um, and so I've started to, and I enjoy that a lot. You know, I like to educate myself. I've had a lot of people on that educate me on the podcast, which I find um, enlightening and fun. Uh, so I'm trying to do a mix now of those stories, uh, still doing the tennis stories. You know, I had Brad Gilbert on recently and just talking about, like you guys do, talk about the tournaments, um, talk to individual players like Riley Opelka. But um, I'm really enjoying doing the ones that are, you know, sports related that you know, politics sort of seems to creep in, is creeping in more and more in the world in general, you know, the, the, whether it's figure skating at the Olympics or the, the Russian, you know, the Russians holding uh, the basketball player, um, you know, for the Brittany Griner story yeah. in, in Russia. So those sort of things really interest me. And in fact, I got a message from my old, one of my old professors at Stanford, who I stayed in touch with over the years, his name is Jim Steyer. His brother ran for president, if you remember. Um, and Jim has been a, a real voice for um, what gets put out online for children and uh, what people, kids see on television and all that. So he's been he's, he's a he's very vocal about those issues. So we've kept in touch over the years and he taught a couple of classes I took. He's a very popular teacher. And so he says, finally, your political science major is paying off. Nah. <laughs> it, only, it only took 25, 30 years in broadcasting, and now you're starting to use it. So I'm enjoying that part of it, sort of diving into some other issues that I think um, 
uh, you know, are relevant to the world we live in. Fantastic. But, and, and Patrick, uh, go ahead, Steve. You have... Just to say quickly, uh, what strikes me, Patrick, is that the, about the podcast is it, it shows how comfortable you are in your own skin. You have this really easy, to, I, 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 lack of a better word again, comfortable style. You're at ease and you put your guests at ease. I speak from experience on that. And it becomes very conversational. And I notice it doesn't seem to matter what realm these people are from, whether it is the political people or the or the pseudo celebrities or I don't care who it is. They, they, they all seem to be able to. I know, again, from when I was on that it, you feel as if you're just having a telephone conversation. You actually forget that you're doing a podcast. Did you set, <laughs> did you set out to do it that way or because you're 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 awfully good at it? Well, thank you, but uh, I feel the same way doing this with you guys. Um, you know, I guess I was experienced at it from being interviewed a lot as a kid, you know, being John's brother and sort of being followed around. And in my broadcasting career, um, I listen. I like to listen to people. You know, I like to learn from people. Obviously, I like to, you know, give my own opinion when it's, when it's relevant and when it's topical. But I, I just enjoy talking and I enjoy learning from people that are real experts in something that maybe I'm not an expert in um, because I've been used to my whole career, you know, come on, talk about tennis. You're the expert. Well, I think I've learned, you know, how to be kind of the other side, which is, okay. I like to talk to people that are the expert in something. And I, I try to do my homework, you know, before I talk to anybody that I come, that comes on, that's not, you know, from the tennis world so that I make sure uh, I know what they're about. I watch, you know, interviews they've done before. So I try to get a little insight into them. So uh, I think doing your homework is the most important. And as I said, I think listening is the most important because uh, like you said, that's what it's about. You know, just hearing from people and having a good time. It's not rocket science. Fantastic. It's fantastic. And I know we, we, we can tell just fearing from your voice, not only through our conversation, but the podcast that you do, you really do enjoy it. It, it seeps out of you, which is great. I'll leave you with this. And Steve knows I'm a, I'm a big college basketball fan. I know you just had Brad Gilbert on. You guys ended your show with some college <laughs> basketball. Brad talked about his West Coast bias and Gonzaga. They right. lost last night. You mentioned the great job Jay Wright's doing at Villanova. The, the listeners can't see it, but we'll eventually put it on YouTube. I got my Kansas Jayhawks shirt. I got to get to the United Center tonight because they're playing. And something that I think you'll, you'll find interesting, Patrick, the head coach at Stanford men's basketball, I think you may know this already, is Jared Haas, who's a KU grad who played in the mid-90s, played with some phenomenal teams. Hey, man, we would, we would kill to have a program like Kansas at Stanford in basketball. We had a good run there. when We had uh, Mike Montgomery for a few years. And I've, I've always been dumbfounded as to why, you know, I would think Stanford would be a great place to go. But, you know, unlike football where you need, you know, 50 great players, you know, in basketball, you, you, you know, get two or three, you can do well, like Duke, obviously, or Kansas. Um, but I'm, I'm pulling for the, you know, I, Brad Gilbert's got the West Coast. I have a little bit of that because I went to Stanford. I'd like to see UCLA win tonight. Um, but my right-hand guy when I worked for the USDA was a guy named Tom Jacobs. I'm going to give a little shout out to him. He was a huge Kansas guy, Jayhawk guy. Um, so he's probably as excited as you are right now about the Jayhawks. I know they're a one seed, but you know, I, look, I said this to Brad and I'll say this to you guys. Don't sleep on old Jay Wright and Villanova, baby. They know how to get it done. They were impressive last night. Great team coach, great team aspect that they play. So, uh, you know, maybe Nova UCLA, that could be the final. I, I don't know if they're on the same sides, but you, you, good luck tonight for Kansas because I think they're the favorite now. That, um, or maybe Duke too, right? That's the yeah, that's one the game at a time, one game at a time Duke for our Jayhawks Jeff, here. He goes out with the win, yeah, yeah, Coach K. Yeah, we'll see. Hey, Patrick, thank this. Was, we, you thank you so much for your time. This was a this was a pleasure, Steve. Uh, I mean, before we end, any any closing thoughts? This was awesome, Patrick. Oh, the closing question that, well, that we forgot to mention, and I just love to hear you talk briefly about it. Recently, Patrick, you've done a lot of stuff for CNN. You mm. come on as sort of a guest sports analyst, and it's not just tennis. They'll have you talking about other things. You seem very – you've always done your homework clearly when you've gone on there too. 
talk about how, how the enjoyment you might be getting out of that and, and what the where it's going. Are you going to do more work for them? Yeah, I mean, I'm hoping to. I really love it. It's um, it's been a you know something new and challenging for me. And like you said, similar to the podcast, but you know the format's obviously much tighter. And and it, it you need to do a lot of homework to be ready for just those couple of minutes because you got to get your points across quickly. You know, you could have anywhere from two and a half minutes to five minutes or six minutes. So I really love doing that. Again, the challenge of of doing things outside of tennis um, inspires me. Look, I love going on there and talking about Novak Djokovic like I did during, you know, that whole debacle in Australia. Um, so that's been a lot of fun. Uh, I really learned, you know, how it works. It's at a place like CNN. So uh, unfortunately this, this, this small issue going on in the Ukraine has gotten in, gotten in the way of um, not just me, but sports stories in general, understandably so. And, and obviously, we're not making light of what's going on there. They're 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 the, the news station, and we're certainly sending our best. And you know, a lot of people in the tennis world being affected by this. You know, Sergey Stokowski and Doga Poloff, You know, taking arms up to protect their country. So I mean, this is this is serious stuff. So we we send our best to them over there. Um, so that topic is obviously uh, important for CNN, understandably. But yeah, it's been a lot of. A lot of fun for me to dive into that world um, and uh, be part of it. So I'm hoping that will continue, you know, in tennis and in other sports as well. We'll end it there. Uh, again, thank you so much for your time, Steve and Patrick. This was, this was an absolute blast. Thank you both. You guys enjoy the, enjoy the rest of the tournament, the Miami Open, and uh, I appreciate you having me on. Thank you so much. Thanks.